And I want to talk to you today about the subject of that it might be fulfilled. Every scripture, with the exception of the first few, every scripture that I'm going to read to you has that phrase in it, that it might be fulfilled. So let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to talk to you about that it might be fulfilled. And once again, it's a kind of an easy memory aid. If you know John 3, 16, just about everybody does. I mean, inside the church. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16. And it's a foundational verse. But I'm going to read verse 15 and 16 and then 17 as well. We've been through this before, but let's read it. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, who is a pastor, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Now notice these words, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 now, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It tells you right there, verse 16, what the scriptures, all 66 books, are designed to do. Doctrine, the knowledge of God, which can be pretty much intellectualized, just kept intellectually. But for reproof and for correction, as well as instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, obviously man or woman, may be perfect, thoroughly or thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so we have this verse here before us that tells us very plainly that the Bible or the book that you hold in your hands today here, definitely states God wrote this. Now, again, for those of you who saw the broadcast of the Bible study that I am still doing, it'll be continued next week. I gave an illustration of a cup, eight-ounce glass, and it has four ounces of water in it. And we know the story, how to measure an optimist or a pessimist, and we use that, you know, are you the kind of guy that sees the glass half full, or are you the kind of guy that sees the glass half empty? But what I want to say to you is the fact is that four ounces is four ounces. That's a fact. Whether someone views it as half full or views it as half empty is a point of view. The fact remains that four ounces is four ounces. That doesn't change. And so the fact is the Bible declares without equivocation, without any dispute whatsoever, it claims to be written by God. All through the Bible we see the statement, For thus saith the Lord, The Lord spake unto me, saying, Or God spake, The Lord spake, and so on. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. The phrase, Thus saith the Lord, is used over 400 times, and most of them in the book of Jeremiah. Hundreds of times, this is God speaking, is how we could colloquialize it. This is God speaking, not men, not man. This is God speaking, the one true God, the only God. This is God speaking and commanded his men about 40, over 1,500 years to write them down. Write what I say to you down. And so we have the Bible. It's no ordinary book. So there's things that we can know about God and we learn about God from nature and we get an idea of symmetry and of course of beauty and of how things work when we examine the universe. But that's limited. Looking with our eyes, with our senses, we are limited as to what we can know about God. The Bible, from the book of Genesis, is a revelation. 
is constantly revealing to us those things we could not know about God without him having told us. We know what the past is, we know what's going on now, and we know what the future holds, because it is written. And by the way, this is what Jesus did with Satan, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, on the so-called Mount of Temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and says to him, if you're the son of God, then command these stones to become bread. He had fasted 40 days, he was hungry. Command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answers with three words. He says, it is written. Satan, in his own cunning, comes back and says, well, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple here, because it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, that in all thy ways they shall bear thee up. Jesus came back and said, it is written again. It's written in another place. In other words, you're misquoting the scriptures. Finally, Satan comes to Jesus and shows him the kingdoms of this world. He says, you can have them all because it's been given to me by permission. This is the meaning of what he was saying, a paraphrase. It has been given to me by permission of the great almighty God to give these kingdoms to whomsoever I will. If you'll only bow down and worship. And Jesus said the last time, it is written. Now, if Jesus can say it is written, then we should learn to be able to say it is written. Or the way we would say it, the Bible says, the Bible says, that's what we need to know. The title of this message is that it may be fulfilled. And again, as a review, anywhere between 25% to a third of the Bible is prophetic in nature, predicts the future, and most of that has already been fulfilled, literally. Whatever God said for his penman to put down in literal fashion, was fulfilled in literal fashion. Therefore, we can expect what the Bible says about the future to be fulfilled in a literal fashion. For example, when it says that Jesus will come out of the sky in his second coming, it means he will come out of the sky. When it says that all eyes shall behold him and even the nation of Israel, that's what it means. Every eye shall behold him. There'll be no mistake that day. Who is, was, and always will be in charge. The one true God. Now we live in a distorted society, that's for sure. We live in a world where truth, uh, like Pilate asked, what is truth? And Jesus said about the truth. We talked about the truth in front of Pilate. And he said, what is truth? Well, I mean, who, know, who really can know what is the truth? But I believe that we can know some truths intuitively as well as intellectually. But we cannot know the plan of God without this book. It is written. And so we live in a time where so many things, even in our lifetime, some of us at least, that once used to exist as common sense and common knowledge has been perverted and twisted beyond all recognition. There was a United States Marine. He was off duty. It was a nice day. He decided to take a ride on his Harley, go out for a ride. And he was out enjoying his ride, the weather and the people and whatever. He came past the zoo. And he saw something very horrific. There was a little girl that had been grabbed by a lion and taken into the cage. And the lion was about to maul her and then eat her. And the parents, of course, were hysterical and beyond themselves. So this young man got off of his bike, got into the cage, and punched the lion right in the face. Right in the face. Dropped the girl. He grabbed the girl, gave the girl back to her parents, and all is well. 
Now, there happened to be a journalist watching all this, who viewed all this, and he said, I've never seen anything so heroic in all my life. Introduced himself as a journalist for a major newspaper, and he says, I'm going to make sure that this story is on the headlines tomorrow of the newspaper. So he said, tell me something about yourself, and he announced that he was a U.S. Marine, went through, you know, a few other details of his life, including that he voted Republican. And the journalist just looked at him a little strangely, and he said, okay. Next morning, the Marine got up just to see if the journalist actually did publish this and put it on the front page. And there it was. U.S. Marine attacks illegal immigrant, <laughs> then steals his lunch. Oh. You see, that's really more truth than fiction. Uh, we have people, including people with the Bible, that twist it. And do not let it say what it says. But I'll guarantee you this, whether we're large or whether we're small, I'm not going to amend this book. I'm not going to change one single word of it. As we're going to see today, every verse that we examine will have in it that it might be fulfilled. And one of those verses that we'll see is when Jesus said that not a jot or a tittle shall pass from the law till everything is fulfilled. This is the uniqueness of the Bible, that it predicts the future accurately, and no other, no other religious book, none, can do that. Because only God knows the future, and only God could write it accurately and literally. And so we have this inspiration of Scripture. I just want to talk about it very briefly. If you still have 2 Timothy 3 in front of you, notice the word holy scriptures. Scripture comes from the Greek word graphe, where we get our English word graphite. The writings, that's what it means, the holy writings. And we notice here that they're able to make us wise in general, but they're able to make us wise to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And all these writings, verse 16, all the holy writings are given by the inspiration of God. And those three English words is one Greek word, theopnistus. And that compound word, theopnistus, we have theos, God, and pneuma, breath, or wind, or the way we're most familiar with it is spirit. All of the holy writings have been given by the breath of God, which is exactly how we see Adam created, the first man. He was taken from the dust, and if you do your own research, you may be very surprised to see how many of the minerals of the ground, the actual physical dirt, is in our human body. God took Adam and he made him out of the ground, formed him to him, this anatomy that we see. Then it says, and he breathed on Adam. Man became a living soul. Let us create man in our own image. The breath of God created humanity in spite of what you may have heard. The breath of God created humanity and the breath of God created the scriptures. So that we read in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, that the word of God is alive and powerful. Quick is the English word that we see in the King James Bible, but it means alive. The word of God is alive and it's powerful. That it might be fulfilled, that's what we're looking at today. That what was fulfilled literally in the past will once again be fulfilled literally in the future because it is written. And we, meaning you and me, would be very wise to take heed to what it says. Not in some points, as I mentioned during the communion, but in all points. We have a Jesus who says, you take all of me, or you take none of me. And that's what the book says. That's what Jesus said. 
For instance, when we're taught to love the Lord our God with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, all of the strength. That's not a part-time endeavor. You take all of me is what God says. You take all of me is what Jesus said. And we would do well to take heed to that. All. Does not mean you mix a little of what Jesus said with a little of what you believe and a little bit of what the Eastern cultures and religions believe and so on. You put it all together and make your own creation. God says, don't amend my word. He gives warnings in this book. Don't touch it. Don't amend it. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. It is written. It's the book of God. And with that in mind, that we have writings, it doesn't take much intelligence to figure out that if things were written, they were written for a reason. This book called the Bible was to be read by you, read and studied by you so you could know God in a way that you cannot know God just by observation, because this book is a revelation. And so we find that the Bible is profitable. The holy writings are profitable for doctrine, which we look for doctrine, good doctrine, biblical doctrine, but also for reproof, also for correction, then for instruction in righteousness. And so today, let's go to, and you can just open with me to the gospel according to Matthew, St. Matthew. And we will not leave that book. We will go to different verses, but we will be in Matthew as you're turning to the gospel according to Matthew, let me remind you of that which you've heard from this pulpit before. Matthew being the very first book of the New Testament. When we end up here in the book of Malachi, the way our books are arranged, our English Bibles. Bible scholars say and estimate that over 300 scriptures were fulfilled by Jesus when he came. I've brought to you the words of Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah who estimated that 456 scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, point to the Messiah in general. But my memory tells me that he fulfilled 365 on his first appearance, but that would be subject to me going back and researching, speaking from my memory. 456 scriptures, 558 altogether, if you include rabbinical writings, talk about the Messiah, a savior, not saviors, plural, not religions, a man would come and be the savior of the world for those that believed on him. And some do. And many, many do not. In any case, the probability of Jesus fulfilling over 300 scriptures that have a variety of statements about him by chance is not just improbable. It's impossible. Let me just say something to you today very kindly. Do you really appreciate this, what you have in front of you? Do you appreciate the profundity, the profoundness of the Bible? The profoundness of Jesus. That he's no ordinary man. He was extraordinary in many ways, of course. And that this was whom God, Father, we know Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. This is whom God wrote about. One would come and then we have all these different aspects of his name, his nature, and so on. Fulfilled in one man. No one has ever done that. No religious leader has ever come along and fulfilled the prophecies about their life to the tune of over 300 and something. Whatever the exact number is. If Edersheim is right, 465. There's no way that can be possible that one person could fulfill them and just be an ordinary person and say, believe in me, believe on me, follow me. But many religious leaders do just that. They simply say something, it sounds good, maybe it is partly true, and everybody follows them. And yet we find 
not the opposite per se, but, but nearly the opposite with Jesus, as I just mentioned. Some take him as a part-time Jesus. Are you a Christian? Oh, yes. But if you examine your life from 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, we find that we are reproved and we're corrected in our thinking and our behavior. But I want to just share this with you, and I'm just going to read it, so just listen. You don't have to turn there. In speaking of the end times, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, And when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is near. Then let them which are in Judea, that's a specific place, flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. So don't come back if you're out of the country. Listen to what he says in Luke 21, verse 22. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written, written, may be fulfilled. Well, the temple was destroyed just about 37 years later. But we understand, our understanding of the Bible is that the temple will be rebuilt. And we'll have a similar situation. In any case, I wanted you to notice Two things in that verse from Luke 21 is that he says, number one, these are going to be the days of vengeance. And we've spoken about that when Jesus went into the temple and he read the scripture. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me from Isaiah 61. And he has anointed me to preach glad tidings and all of this. He says, this day, that scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. But he stopped in the middle of the second verse of Isaiah 61 and the days of vengeance of our God. And then he speaks about him here. We are in the days, the age of grace, the days of mercy. And we must pay strict attention to this man, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is told in a dream that he can take Mary, a teenager, to be his wife. Because he knew, and now I suppose others were learning as well, that she's pregnant. But first, when we look at the Magnificat in Luke and we look at the announcement given by Gabriel to Mary that you're going to have a child, you're going to have a baby. And she says, but I've never had any relationship with man. I haven't known my husband, Joseph, which was her fiance at the time. And the angel Gabriel tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that which is conceived in you shall be the Christ. His name shall be called Jesus. Call his name Yeshua. Call his name the Savior, because he'll save his people from their sins. Now, having been told that she's pregnant, and trying to explain this to people is impossible. I've never known a man. No one would believe her. William Cowper wrote, God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, plants his footstep on the sea and rides upon the storm. We don't always understand everything that we're reading. We understand a lot more than the ancients, but God works in mysterious ways. But when you have the Spirit of God working with you and working on you, you know it. It's intuitive. Follow him. You don't know everything, and no one does. But you follow him because you know this is that call. It's a call to salvation. And so when we look at this verse in verse 22, as Joseph is comforted and told to take Mary to be his wife, verse 22, Matthew chapter 1, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We often say God is with us. We mean it more in a very general way. Here, it was literal. 
100% man, born of a woman, 100% God because there was no human contact in her pregnancy. Now, if you were a mathematician or you were going to put statistics on this, of how probable is it that a woman's going to be pregnant without knowing a man, there is no statistic in my mind that you could put on this. There's no way that you could possibly explain this other than the supernatural. And think of the difficulty that Mary and Joseph would have had. Even Jesus, during his ministry, I mean, everybody knew. Jewish leaders were saying of Jesus, well, we were not born of fornication. Everybody assumed it because that's what we would all assume. But Mary is saying, I'm telling you, I have not known Joseph. And Joseph is saying, I'm telling you, I have not known my wife. I have not been with her. And of course, everybody's going to be saying, well, she was with somebody else. But see, it was the angels that appeared to Joseph. This is the revelation I'm talking about. That Joseph could not have known this because it's impossible. Except that God revealed it to him. Let me say once again, do you really appreciate this book? It's telling us not only what was, what is. It's telling us what's going to be. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets. Emmanuel, God with us. And let's just for a moment just apply this and think of when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. See him or feel him. God is a spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But he's here. He's here. And so we see in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 13 and 14. That a woman that had never known a man is pregnant with what we'll say is the God child. The next chapter over, chapter 2. And it seems, in my mind, it seems to be curious that God does work the way he was. Again, William Cowper's words, God works in mysterious ways. If I were God, I would just sort of appear on the earth. There'd be no contest as to who believes and who doesn't believe. But even if I didn't do that, I would make things so clear, so plain, and so lucid that anyone could understand it. And here's the thing, and keep this in mind. That's not how he did it. And it's not how he does it now. In Matthew chapter 2, for example, we have these men. You know, we sing about the wise men, we three kings of Orient are, whoever they were. They knew something about, obviously, about astronomy and something about a savior coming into the world. They put it together. They recognized his star. And they accurately recognized his star. So they come in and they speak to Herod about it. And Herod is upset that the king of the Jews would be born. And he's the king. Herod is the king. By the way, just as an aside, this is how politics runs. And it has always run. And it will always run. People who want power are the least people that should have it. But that's how it goes. In any case, Herod then makes a decree to find this child and kill him. And so Joseph is once again warned in a dream At verse 13, chapter 2 of Matthew, it says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Why did God permit that? I mean, why couldn't God kill Herod and make it easy? He's born in Bethlehem, and just leave it that way. Why? And I don't have the answer. And don't tell me that you do either, because you don't. (laughs) He works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Verse 14, meaning Joseph, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. From Joseph's point of view, or Mary's as well, this is confusing. 
I'm told by Gabriel that I'm going to have a child. Now I'm pregnant. And now Herod's going to destroy. This mighty God, the almighty God, El Shaddai. He couldn't kill Herod and just take care of the situation? Yeah, sure, he could have, but he didn't. And those reasons are not apparent in the plain text. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, verse 14, and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Let's go back and pretend that we don't know much about the Old Testament and we are not really believers in the Bible. We're critics. And we're going to antagonize those that believe. And we've studied, we've done our homework, and we say, you say the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Is that correct? Yes. Well, then why does it say he comes out of Egypt? There's no Bethlehem in Egypt. And then we'll go further as we see these scriptures. It seems like an apparent contradiction. And let me help you out today, my brothers and sisters. What seems like a contradiction is simply apparent, an apparent contradiction. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Is that what you see? It's not what I'm seeing. I don't see a lot of goodwill or peace, but God has a plan. And this is probably the most important thing that you could take away from this message. God has been working a plan from way back here in the book of Genesis. And we are in that plan right now. I'll share that with you in just a couple of minutes. You are fulfilling prophecy. And the world is fulfilling the prophecies of God every single second of every single minute of every single hour of every day, week, month, and year. Both of you who believe and those that don't are fulfilling the word of God. And many don't know it. And so now they're in Egypt that it might be fulfilled because God spoke it. When God speaks, as we have in Genesis 1, let there be light. And there was light. I'll just give you a little commentary on Genesis 1. I read, I, I told you, you know this, I read a lot of books. And I'm reading more and more and more. How many millions and billions of years and how the brain is evolved and all these different things. Then I read Genesis 1 and I come across this. And the evening and the morning was the first day. Amen. Evening, morning is 24 hours. Yom. And then many churches now have capitulated to what appears to be science. And they say, well, you know, it's, uh, the evidence is there. The book says, and of course, there's much evidence on our side as well. But the book says the evening and the morning was the first day that when God just said, let there be light, there was light. And then plants and animals. And finally, a man. Here we have Jesus is now in Egypt in Matthew chapter 2. Look a few verses down, same chapter. An angel appears, verse 19, again to Joseph. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go in the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. He arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in the dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called the Nazarene. Now we have further, the story gets further complicated. I thought he was going to be born in Bethlehem. It says over here that he comes out of Egypt. It says over here that he's going to be in Nazarene. Then finally he'll make Capernaum his headquarters. No wonder God says to us, love me with all of your mind. Because it takes a bit of intelligence, in addition, of course, to the leading under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, to understand the scriptures. They don't just fall off the tree like ripe apples or pears or cherries. 
It takes a bit of intelligence. And no, it does not mean that you must have a very high IQ to understand it. It means you must have the Holy Spirit and put forth the effort for a book that God wrote. And I want to thank my sister for buying a book for me that I mentioned in my sermon last week. And now it's on my desk. And I'm going to reread it. I haven't read it in 40 years, more, 50 years. And I'm going to read it again. And it's a good book and it's a good story, but it wasn't written by God. And no book in your library or in the public library or in our city library was written by God. But you have in your lap today one that was. Want to know God? Know the word. Spend time. Stop making excuses about how busy you are and this and that. And you can't read and all that. You can't read. Listen to it. It's on audio tape. You can even have audio tape with video now. See, God is taking away every excuse that people can't know God. There'll be no excuse. In Romans 1, it says they were without excuse. There was no excuse. I feel something to say to you, too. You say, well, I'm tired. Then let God's question be answered from the Old Testament, saying, in what way have I wearied thee? Oh, well, you know, uh, yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you one thing. God set aside a day for people to remember God and to rest. And we're to work six days. And he said, I'm setting this day aside. And Sabbath was Saturday in the Old Testament. And the Lord stopped. He ceased. He wasn't tired. He ceased. Because that's what Sabbath means. It means to stop, to cease. And then it's a kind of an amazing thing, in a sense, to hear people talk about all the troubles that they have and the rest that they need when God says, I've given you a day to rest. But also a day to gather together and remember me and remember the words and so on. That's why we have the first day, because Jesus established a new testament, the new covenant. And it is the first day of the week that he rose, arose. So we've been doing that for 2,000 years. In any case, as he arose and he went into Galilee, it was fulfilled that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. What is a Nazarene? We don't find that here. Well, not specifically. But in Isaiah 11.1, 1, a prophecy, a messianic prophecy says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Natsar is the Hebrew word underneath our English word branch, and it means a twig. Something very obscure and weak. God is not weak, and God is certainly not obscure in one manner of speaking, but he's obscure in another. It says here in the book that their understanding was darkened. People who say they know God, God says, no, you don't. I wrote a book so that you could know me. Pay attention to the book. That it may be fulfilled now that he would be called the root of Jesse, Natsar, Hebrew where we get our English word Nazarene, or Nazareth. And Nazareth, as we review the New Testament, especially the Gospel, we see Nathaniel, who's told by Philip, we have found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And to show you the obscurity of Nazareth, Nathaniel's response is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Good thing not meaning there's not good people there, meaning it's an obscure little place. Nobody knows about it. God doesn't work like that. You know what? Yes, he does. We read in 1 Corinthians that the people that God calls are sometimes the least likely to become the servants of God. Why? We're told again that he may confound the wise. People with their graduate degrees from all these Ivy League schools and universities. And oh, we read about Cambridge lately. And that hasn't been too much fun to read about what they're doing there. Oxford as well. Harvard and Yale and all this. I'm not saying they're not intelligent people. I'm just saying that that doesn't mean that they know God. Father Jesus said, I thank thee. 
that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, the ones with the university degrees and the professors that sound so smart and so reasonable at times and has revealed them unto babes. Where do we see Jesus? Once we see him talking to the doctors when he was very young, and he's confounding the doctors and he's 12 years old. Doctors of the law, philosophers, long beards. And by the way, barba non philosophium. A beard doesn't make a philosopher. And he's confounding them with truth because he is the truth. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Found in the person. My favorite is I am the resurrection. The resurrection is a doctrine, but it's not just a doctrine. It's I am the resurrection. Jesus. And so it was fulfilled. Born in Bethlehem. Came from Egypt. Became a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 4, just turn a page or so in your Bible. The temptation that I talked to you about is in this chapter, just preceding the verses I'm about to read. But I'm going to go down to verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John, his cousin, John the Baptist, or John Baptist, as he's announced there in Luke, that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtalim that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Why didn't he go to Jerusalem? That was the capital, still is. Why didn't he go to the big crowds? Why didn't he hobnob with all the politicians and actors and all these university people with their degrees. And he didn't. He was called a friend of sinners. He sat with people who worked for the IRS. He sat with people who were, well, not only sick and impotent, but he sat with people that nobody else would sit with. He's talking to a woman who meets him at the well, and he says, woman, draw me something to drink, and they get into a conversation. And when the apostles come, they're astonished that he's talking not only to a woman, but to a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know much about biblical history, the Samaritans, 10 tribes, broke off early on after Solomon, became, well, they weren't Judea is where we get Jew or Judah. So they don't get along. And they set up their own capital over in Dan and Bethel in the northern tribe. So they don't get along. Now, Jesus is talking to her. She said, I heard that the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he'll tell us things. He says, woman, I'm that one. Why talk to her? She's had so many husbands, if you read the rest of the story. She's had so many husbands, and Jesus says to her, I know you've had many husbands, but the one you're living with right now is not your husband. And he's telling her her secrets, but why her? That's my point. Why her? Why Naphtali? Why uh, Zebulun? Why these places? They're obscure places. And yet, when Jesus came to Capernaum, most of his mighty works were done in that city. And here's the odd thing, and here's something for us here. After a while... After all these works that Jesus did in Capernaum and in well, many of the cities that he went, but Capernaum was his headquarters. We just read that. He'd say, woe unto thee, Capernaum. And they would say, we would say, we saw so many miracles. We've had great services. The music has been great. People were actually healed. Demon-possessed people were actually dispossessed of their demons. And he says, woe unto thee, Capernaum, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the works that have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and the works, if they had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Think about that. Because it says that Sodom, they were sinners exceedingly. 
that God destroyed the whole place. And they were completely obliterated off the earth. And we know how. I mean, when we read it in the scripture. But Jesus said, if what I did in your city, I had done in Sodom, it would still remain. And here we apply it to ourselves. I say as Americans, it applies to people across the world. But here in America, we boast of our Christian heritage and how we were founded by Christian people and on and on and on. And it's true. It's true. You've had lessons here I've given you and reading original documents. But the problem is, Sodom didn't have a Bible. And we do. What are we going to say to the Lord? We didn't know. What are we going to say to the Lord? If at this point in history, we are not in it all the way, what are we going to say? Well, I'll leave that to you. I'm only speaking for myself. Whatever the cost may be, like the Apostle Paul teaches us, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so we go on. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. All these great things that Jesus says here in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. In verse 17, he says this. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law to all be fulfilled. Quickly, and we've done this before, when I have the whiteboard here to show you, jot is the Hebrew yod. It looks like a comma, but it's a letter equal to our English Y, but small. Hangs in the air if you ever looked at it, if you ever see yod heh vav heh, yod. And then a tittle is a little appendage that hangs off of the edge of some Hebrew letters, like resh has a rounded corner. But then you have chet, and chet has a little tittle. Jesus said, not the edge of chet, or not the yod of the smallest of all the Hebrew, not one of them will disappear till everything is fulfilled. And right now, and I'm going to say this again, right now, unawares, all over the world, we're fulfilling the will of God. That doesn't mean everyone will see him or be saved. The Bible makes that very plain. But they're fulfilling the will of God. Because God says, this is how it's going to go. And over a period of so many centuries, little by little, he reveals the plan. Then Jesus is born under these highly unusual circumstances, impossible with a virgin to begin with, in obscure places, healing the sick, delivering the oppressed, teaching obscure people. Why didn't he go to these universities? These are the people that we got to train because they've got the brains. But he didn't. He trained obscure people, fishermen, again, publicans, sinners. <laughs> Why? It's, you know, look at. It's not the way we would do things. And you know what? It's not the way the church does things now. We shake hands with the most powerful politician. And we say, he's on our side. He's one of us. Well, maybe he is. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But one thing I do know, God picks the least likely and raises them up. And they speak of the wisdom of God. I'm not going through my testimony today. But you know that basically that was me, the least likely to succeed. And God gave me a pulpit. And I've been in it for 45 years. Amen. Not an entertainer. Not here to entertain people. I'm here to preach and fulfill the word of God in my station, in my duty, and what God has called me to do. Nothing will perish from the prophecies of the Bible till they're all fulfilled. That was the meaning of what Jesus had. Come with me to Matthew chapter 8. And so Jesus goes around and he touches sick people and the sick people get well. 
And so as a parenthetical statement and commentary, once again, let me tell you that when we have the privilege of going to this Jesus who has not changed one iota, who's not changed one bit, of going to God when we're sick and say, well, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. We have that privilege. And let me give you a word of exhortation. When you speak, the book says, speak as the oracles of God. Now, you know the mess that we got here in America and around the world, but I'll stick with America. You know the mess that we got and how we're going to fix it and all of this here. And God, through Habakkuk, says, if the fields don't give their fruit and there's no food in the stalls, you know, no meat, I will yet praise my God. Why? Because God will provide because he's Jehovah, Jireh, and he hasn't changed. Not one bit. He didn't come into the 21st century and lose his powers or lose his omniscience or lose his throne. He's God. Always was, is now, always will be. He's God. And when we speak, the book says we should speak as the oracles of God. What are we going to do about the price of gas? God. What are we going to do about the price of whatever you're buying at the store? God. God took Elijah during a great famine, which Elijah actually prayed for, went down to the river Kirith, and here comes the ravens, blackbirds, dropping his food off for him. Room service. Nobody else was receiving. People were starving. But God was feeding Elijah. God feeds. God clothes. God takes care of those that are his. Take care of his own, because he's a good shepherd. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid in sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. Now, this is a really engaging verse, number 16. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick. Verse 17 now. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias, or Esaias the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. From Isaiah 53. Amen. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Why? Because whoever is connected to God in one manner of speaking has the strength always going through him. And it never stops. Jesus said, I will give the Holy Spirit and he will be in you a fountain, a well springing up. But it's never blocked up. It's always there. Strengthening us. Church, let me just tell you, there's no book like this book. Healer of the sick. Friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. Talk to people nobody else would talk to. And yet he's very select. They want him in another city. See, the committee that was running his crusade said, hey, you know what? We have a big opportunity over here. Lots of people bringing money for the ministry. And Jesus says, not called to go there. Let's go over here. And it goes into these obscure places. The widow of Nain. Where's Nain? And who is this woman? She's crying because her son has died. And Jesus sees the widow and he stops. And he touches the buyer. And the coffin opens up. Or the child raises up. And the woman, it says, received her son back to life again. This Jesus has not changed. He's still the same. 
that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. I would submit to you that we are able to go through anything this life can bring us, any obstacle, any sorrow, any grief, anything this life brings up against us. If we have the strength of Christ, which is written in one of my favorite verses, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not a tradition, not some teachings of man, not even the encouragement sometimes of the brethren. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And why in the world would I want to be ashamed of Jesus? I'm not. If everyone defected from him, I still wouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. Are you a Christian? I am. Are you that pastor? I am that pastor. The one that came to your city 35 years ago preaching the gospel. Yes, that's me. You could read Matthew chapter 12, verse 17. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, chapter 21, verse 4, chapter 24, verse 34, chapter 26, verse 54, chapter 26, verse 56, 27, verse 9, 27, verse 35. And then you got to go into Luke, Mark, Luke, and John, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. Now, let me not neglect to tell you how are we fulfilling prophecy right now. You who truly know the Lord, you've been born again by his spirit, are the same group of people that Jesus spoke about. He says, I have many other sheep that have to come into the fold. And he was looking way down the road into Yonkers, New York, where I was and my mom and my brother and my sister-in-law, my wife. And he was looking into your city and he was looking into your state, your habitation, many other sheep. And we're fulfilling the prophecies of God when he says, come, follow me. We heard his voice. It could have been the voice of a preacher. It could have been the words on the gospel track. It could have been the Bible. We flipped open. I actually literally flipped open the Bible when my wife and I were not born again. And I was a bit ahead of her as far as what I knew God was calling me, whatever. And we were in a difficult, difficult situation. So I was in a room by myself. My wife was, well, she was with her mother and she was dying. And I got on my knees and began to pray. And I just literally flipped open the Bible. It's not a good practice. I'm not saying to do this. But sometimes God knows our desperation. I literally flipped open to the book of Acts chapter 16, which had a heading on it. The conversion of Lydia. I said, whoa. I'm praying for something else. And God says, how about this as a bonus? My wife and I were born again together. I was reading a little bit before her. We were baptized, same tank. We were only two, her and I, and been together now all 47 years. And you know why? Was it because I was able to say, Lord, I know that this is the woman that you've selected. I didn't know that, but God knew. Because I'll tell you something, the pastor is a rough business. You know, you can't be a sissy. Some people think that we're sissy men. I'm not a sissy man. Try me out. You see, you're fulfilling prophecy by just being born again. I'm fulfilling prophecy by preaching the gospel. Now that we've had radio for 34 years, the spring will be 35 years, so it's been spreading around upstate. Now it's going all over the world. And I'm not the only one, of course. It's going all over the world. I'm in connection on a daily basis with people from countries far, far away. I'm praying for you, they say. I don't even know who they are. And we're getting closer because everything must be fulfilled. And Jesus, when it says once again that he'll come from the sky, he's coming from the sky. And he's coming soon. How soon? I don't know. But he's coming. 
all things will be fulfilled. And like we read in the fairy tales, only this time it won't be a fairy tale. And they all lived happily ever after. What in the world are you thinking during the week, not giving your whole devotion to Christ? I'm not saying be a stupid fanatic. You don't have to be a weirdo. Jesus never said, come follow me and be weirdos. <laughs> because quite frankly, some people who profess Christ are just simply weird. They were weird before they belonged to him. They're weird in Christ. They're weird when they come to the church. I'm just simply saying, why aren't you 100% so that everybody knows at your place of work or in your family what you stand for? Because I can tell you that in my case, so many of my family members became Christians because one of us made a stand. And they will too. In your case, if you just get your foot off the brake, stop the compromise, stop the excuses. One of the reasons I don't travel to other churches uh, is I don't get invited. So that's a good reason. <laughs> that's one real good reason I never get invited anymore. I used to. But now you know, we've got 20 minutes. I think I'd just stay home. I gotta go all the way down to your place. What can I say? I don't know what other people can say. In 20 minutes, I can't do it. There's so much to talk about. All right. Every year since I was in my teens on television, they would play a video and recite this poem. And I'd like to give it to you. Many of you have heard it. But if you really think about what I've just said to you, what we've read, this poem has great meaning. Dr. James Allen Francis became born again. His first pastorate was in New York City the turn of the century, wound up finally in Los Angeles. But in his sermon, this was pretty much the highlight, and then it began to take off. He wrote, here's a man who was born in an obscure village. Obviously, he's talking about Jesus. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village as the child of a peasant woman. Not the way we would do it. We'd have some multi, 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 multi-billionaire giving child, you know, a woman pregnant without a man's touch in an obscure village, child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. Another betrayed him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon the cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries. Now, this is written in the 1800s. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the center of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. Amen. Jesus. Well, obviously, he's affected you and me. 
And when you were born again, and if you're born again, you fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus when he said, I have other sheep, not of this fold, to bring them in. You just make sure, you just make sure you're one of his. Because many of his disciples turned away from him at some point. Something was just, again, too much to ask. For me, there's no turning back. Amen. There's no turning back. Father, we come before you this morning, this Lord's Day, and we thank you for what you've done. We read the story of Jesus, and we read that it's not written the way a man would ordinarily write God coming to earth. Everything about it is upside down. But you loved Amsterdam, New York so much that you sent preachers here. You're still calling people before you come to judge the living and the dead. Help us, Lord, to be found worthy of that blessed name. Help us, Lord, Father God, to truly know you. Let us never be ashamed of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Help us, God, to never turn our backs as so many have. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory and the honor, for you are great and greatly to be praised. If in your heart of hearts, you know, I'm not judging you, I'm just simply saying, you know, been a bit of a holdout. Not everything is lining up. And yes, growth in Christ is growth. It takes time. I'm just simply saying, some are resigning, as the disciples did in John 6.6.6. But it's actually time to resign, follow Christ, his way, his book, all the heart, all the mind, all the soul. Did you do that today? You're born again. And in your heart, you know there's areas where, you know, you just, you do what I was saying to you last week, Augustine's words, you know. Lord, change me, but not all of me. Lord, change me, but not yet. As God tugs on your heart by the Holy Spirit, you finally get to the point where you say, God, change me. Just change me. It may take a little working on God's behalf and yours, but you finally get to the point you see God's way is the way. And you say, God, change me. Can you cry out that from your heart today? Change me, God. Line me up with your word. I know I'm a sinful man. I know I'm not perfect. Change me, O oh God. Change your people, O oh God. As your coming is closer and closer every day. Change us. Give us the confidence that we could stand before man in any place at any time. If they ask the question, are you one of his followers? We could say, yes, I am. Help us, God. We ask for your help today, God. We ask today that you would fill us with your spirit, not for entertainment, not just to have fun at church. But really with the real thing, because we're going to need that power in an evil and ungodly world. Help us, God. Fill us with your spirit the way it was designed to be in the book and in your mind. We give you praise and glory. We give you honor and thanksgiving. For you, again, are great and you are greatly to be praised. Bless your name. Bless your name forever. Whatever the day holds, it's the day that our Lord has made. We're going to rejoice be glad in it. I'll give you this advice I gave to a young person just a few days ago. Thrive in the chaos. Get used to the chaos. Because there's more to come. And this is basically just training for what's yet to come. And we have to learn to thrive in the chaos and keep going straight and keep following orders. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's give the Lord a praise offering before we finish today. <clears throat> we bless your name, O oh God. We bless your mighty name. So, Lord, just help us to understand, because without you, we can do nothing. Help us, God, to appreciate what we read, what we hear, 
And let the words today sink deep into the hearts of those who listened here in the service, online, and then those who listen on the radio. Help them all. And God, this week, remind us to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And then remind us that the proof that we love you is that we're willing to love each other. Help us with these two things and everything else. We pray today. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. Amen. Amen.